Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to another episode of Post Woke, the New York-based podcast where we learn intellectual self-defense. It was so gratifying to hear all the positive feedback after our first episode last week. And one of the common responses was to request more of Alison Gray. So I heard you and I've delivered. Episode two features a full length interview I just did with her, including news about her brand new musical creation. But before we move forward toward that, I wanna remind you to check the show notes to learn how to subscribe to Post Woke on my Substack. By doing so, you'll get all my podcasts and articles, plus special bonus content just for subscribers only. Also, you'll find my email address in the notes. I welcome your sincere feedback and suggestions. After a short break, I'll be back with my rant of the week, followed, of course, by Allison Gray. Don't touch that dial. To begin today's discussion requires me to tell you about a project that I started a little more than five years ago. It's a one-man mission to help homeless women on the streets of New York City. It's very simply called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And I've been doing this for five years and it's been one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And I will eventually go into detail about it here for two reasons, because of course I appreciate any and all help from the listeners, but I think it's also quite relevant um, to highlight how I transitioned from ineffective and exhibitionist street activism to, to direct relief on the streets. But for now, I'm going to tell you a story related to this project to lead into the topic of the week. The other day, I was out here in my neighborhood of Astoria, Queens, looking for some homeless women that I am familiar with and know and help on a regular basis. And so I, from a distance, I saw this woman named Tiffany that I've been helping for a little while. But I also could see from a distance that a man who was moving in a way that, that was kind of erratic and gave me the impression that he was pretty unstable was coming up close to her. And so I started to speed up my walking in case I had to uh, chase him off. But then a man who I knew from the neighborhood and assumed was homeless, um, a young light-skinned black man came over and defended Tiffany and chased this uh, creep off. So that man also walked away. So when I walked up, Tiffany was alone for a few seconds. So she greeted me and I said, what's going on? And she said, I don't know, that guy's nuts. He tried to spit at me. So then the, ho the other homeless man who helped her came back over. I was surprised to learn that it's actually, his name is Danny and it's Tiffany's husband. So we shook hands and he explained what was going on. And he uh, just chose to explain to me that the erratic, unstable man um, called him, Danny, the N-word, and chose to mock Black Lives Matter to Danny as if that was a way to get at him. So Danny and Tiffany then sort of got into their own conversation in front of me about how ridiculous that is and how they both believe that all lives matter and they, they don't care about this politics nonsense. And then Danny looks up at me and says, Besides, if they care so much about black lives, why aren't they paying attention to crime and murder and the things that really impact us black people? So um, as you can see, it's quite instructive to speak to homeless people on the regular. And I've been doing it for five years because, you see, they don't have news feeds and algorithms. So they tend to speak from the heart. 
not from some hive mind. And I've learned a whole lot from these um, personal conversations I've had mostly with homeless women over the past five years. So they don't realize or don't care that one particular hive mind is regularly telling us that American police are hunting down black men in an epidemic of murders. Now, I'm not being hyperbolic. Pundits of the woke kind have declared that cops are hunting black men. LeBron James himself tweeted, for black people right now, we think you're hunting us. And some folks unselfconsciously call it an epidemic. And in the Black Lives Matter mission statement, it is written that black people are being, quote, systematically targeted for demise, unquote. Of course, a segment of the media picks up these quotes and runs with it as clickbait stories without any context or fact checking. As a result, opinions are manufactured and sides are drawn. So I have a very simple question for the listeners out there. Do you know how many unarmed black men were killed by US law enforcement in 2020? Now, I would not blame you if you guessed hundreds, if not thousands, but get ready because the answer is 18. Now, I'm gonna give you some facts and figures that um, you wouldn't get, I wouldn't get from my conversation with the homeless folks, but they kind of knew some level of this intuitively. Each year, there are about 60 million interactions between police and civilians age 16 and older. In 2020, during those roughly 60 million interactions, 1,021 people were killed by police. Of that number, only 55 were unarmed. Of that number, 55 unarmed, 24 were white and 18 were black. So proportional to population demographics, of course, unarmed blacks are indeed being killed at a higher rate than unarmed whites. But some further context, there are about 7 million white people arrested each year in the US. For blacks, that number is about 2.6 million. So that means about 2.6 million black people were arrested last year, of which 18 unarmed black people were killed. That's a epidemic of 0.00072%. Now, is 18 unarmed black people killed by cops way too much? Absolutely yes. Am I saying violent cops should not be prosecuted? Absolutely not. Am I denying the existence of racism? Obviously not. But do the above statistics by any rational assessment constitute being hunted or systematically targeted for demise? Again, obviously not. Unfortunately, virtue signaling social media posts aren't concerned with real numbers, nuance, and context. Thanks to misleading media narratives, you may even believe that cops shooting black people is the biggest problem in the African-American community. Meanwhile, the top cause of death for black men under 44 is homicide. For those over 44, it's heart disease. Also, the poverty rate for black Americans is 18.8% compared to 7.3% for whites. Studies consistently find that poor men of all races and ethnicities live 15 years less on average than wealthier men. For women, the difference is 10 years. But somehow all these lethal realities don't fit into the agenda of a group called Black Lives Matter. Instead, they keep the focus on police shootings of unarmed black people without mentioning that, the, mentioning that the total last year was 18. Now, pointing all of this out 
may, may get me labeled a white supremacist in woke, in woke world. So please allow me to balance things out with another fabricated talking point from the other side. And this one is the oft repeated line that liberals want to take guns away from Americans. For the record, gun control doesn't mean ban all guns. So if you think liberals want your guns, well, you've been effectively manipulated by right-wing media, the NRA, Republican politicians, and others. In reality, there are roughly twice as many guns per capita in the US as there were in 1968. There are more than 300 million legally owned guns in all. You're doing fine, gun lovers. And even when allegedly liberal presidents had the power to do so, they stayed far, far away from your beloved arsenal. For example, in 2009 and 2010, Barack Obama had control of the Senate and the House. Did he jump on this opportunity to challenge the Second Amendment? Nope. But he did deliver some epic bailouts to transnational corporations and financial institutions. In 1993 and 94, Bill Clinton had control of the Senate and the House. Did he jump on this opportunity to challenge this, the Second Amendment? Nope. But in those two years, this alleged liberal hero signed the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, presided over the invasion of Somalia, increased the Pentagon budget by $25 billion, ordered the bombing of Iraq and the Balkans, renewed sanctions on Iraq, and passed a crime bill that gave us more cops, more prisons, and 58 more offenses punishable by death. Never once did Bubba or Barack order their FEMA stormtroopers to take away your guns. As for Joe Biden, check, read his current gun control plan for yourself and see if you find any hint of your guns being taken away. Spoiler alert, you won't. So if you believe the liberals are coming for your legally owned weapons, it's because you have been consciously and deliberately conditioned to believe this. Outside of meaningless election year rhetoric, there is no evidence for your fervent belief. Pointing this out, however, might get me labeled a libtard. So to all sides of these so-called debates, I ask this very fundamental question. Have you ever stopped to deeply ponder why you believe what you believe? We are each the product of too many influences to count. Actors, good, bad, and indifferent, are shaping you 24-7. Some of today's biggest influencers, of course, are in the media. And whether you label them liberal or conservative, most major media outlets are large corporations owned by or aligned with even larger corporations. And like all good little capitalists, they share a common goal to make a profit by selling a product to a given market. What's the market? That's easy. Advertisers. The product? Well, since any advertiser worth his graying ponytail lusts after an affluent audience, the product is obviously an elite clientele with an unencumbered cash flow. Therefore, we shouldn't find it shocking that the image of the world being presented by a corporate-owned press reflects the interests of the select players in this sordid little love triangle. No news outlet or, and no social media platform, by definition, can be unbiased. Their loyalties lie only with profit and power. Thus, the burden is always on us to become more discerning as media consumers and critical thinkers. The facts are out there, but finding them requires you to develop a neutral filter. What we think, believe, and feel matters. We've always been conditioned from the cradle to the grave. 
These days, however, the process is far more effective and insidious than ever before. We're tricked and herded into echo chambers and hive minds, yet we somehow end up believing that this groupthink accurately reflects our deeply held values. In fact, we'll literally fight anyone who disagrees with these manufactured opinions. This goes for all positions on the full ideological spectrum. So a big reminder, only the elites win if we do not actively embrace independent thought. So if you have never stopped to really dissect why you believe what you believe, now would be an awesome time to start doing so. We'll be right back with Allison Gray. Feel it as it comes down low to a hell that only just heard was the sound of someone reclaiming their voice from the thieves of destiny. Who you just heard is my guest, Alison Gray. She is best known for her writing, but that is about to change because this week she has released her first single, a song called Earthquake, some of which you just heard. Alison and I spoke briefly last week and she mentioned the cultic church from her past. This time I'll ask her to connect that experience with her latest musical release. Alison Gray, welcome back to Post Woke and congratulations on Earthquake. Wow, this is surreal. Thank you so much for, first of all, having me as a guest, but second of all, providing space to honor the journey that led up to this moment where I'm releasing my first song. Uh, the, the pleasure is mine. And speaking of journeys that need to be honored, I would like to ask you, you, you were, you started as a singer in the church that you mentioned in the previous episode. So would you tell the listeners a little bit about how that journey started out and how it led you to this this week with the release of Earthquake? Sure. So before I tell the story, I do feel the need to say that I don't feel as uh, attached to the narrative that I'm about to share as I used to. I don't really identify with the pain anymore, but it is important to, you know, like we said, honor the journey that makes you who you are. So um, my journey up until now has been that I was born and raised into a fundamentalist church and the pastor was my godfather and all of that. So pressure was already on. And then when I was five, they discovered that I can sing. And this just before I even knew what was happening, you know, I was very young. I didn't know how to describe the experiences I was having. They just started show ponying me and making a cash cow out of me. And I had to sing for every single event, every Sunday service, sometimes Friday services and Wednesday services. And, and I frankly, I feel like my voice was whored out um, from the time I was a very young girl up until I left the church at age 16. And, um, you know, it wasn't just that they forced me to sing for everything, even when I told them no. And, you know, I, I did everything I could to get out of this. Like, I pretended to be sick. And, um, but, you know, they didn't care because I, I later found out that they were making a lot of money off of my singing. And uh, I would always be told that 
um, my performances helped this church to pay off all of their bills or help this other church to, to fund this big event that they wanted to have. And, and on the flip side of, you know, them making it out to be like, I was doing this huge favor for all these churches. Um, they would also basically threaten me with hellfire if I didn't sing. Um, they made it out to be that if I tried to get out of this obligation, that I was displeasing God and uh, there would be a price to pay. And, you know, when you grow up in a, a very super Christian church, that price is hell, basically. So the act of singing itself became a trigger and it brought me back. It regressed me to this headspace where I felt so helpless and powerless, like standing in front of a room full of adults who should be taking care of you and should be sensitive to your needs as a child, but are just using you for money. And it, you know, that left a really deep wound. Weirdly enough, in my later teens, I ended up being part of a number of programs where I was classically trained and I got to travel and sing, um, you know, outside of a religious context. So I was able to get a taste of what singing feels like when it's not by threat of force. And that, I think, planted the seed of hope that would eventually bring me back to singing. But after I left the church, um, I did leave singing behind for a decade. And I only recently came back to it once I had, you know, a dark night of the soul that made me contemplate, like, why am I here? And just because other people violated my gift does that mean I should never be able to enjoy it for myself? You know, is it possible to recover this this talent that other people have benefited from all my life? But, you know, when's it my turn? Well, can and, I ask you at mm -hmm. this point when, when you're talking about a point where you left singing behind, is that when you took up writing and is that when you found an alternative um, avenue to to uh, channel your creative urges? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing is, I didn't even realize that's what I was doing. Um, after I left singing behind, I started hyper focusing on writing and my writing was successful. I won a number of awards and competitions and got to do all sorts of cool events because of my writing. Um, I went viral a few times. And so I was I was experiencing success in a form of communication. But ultimately, it was a sad attempt to replace the fulfillment that only like singing could bring you know i was using my voice but i wasn't really really using my voice so um so yeah after a while of just writing and writing and feeling more and more lost uh i was like wait you know i know what's missing i i'm supposed to be singing Wow. Well, for the record, I love your writing. So I, <laughs> I, I don't see it as a poor replacement. I see it as a, <laughs> as a parallel track. So I just, I just want to put that out there. But now we get to the point where we just heard a sample of your exciting and excellent new song. And on your, on your um, website, you talk about that you, I mean, let me quote you. You say, now I sing because I want to sing. Now mm -hmm. my voice is my voice. Mm -hmm. When I share my music, I am sharing my process of self self-liberation, which, as we spoke last week, is a version of what you call unminding, is a version of what we on this podcast call intellectual self-defense. So I would love for you to share with the listeners of how you liberated yourself to reclaim your voice and to, to, to create such an excellent new song with many, many more on the way. 
Oof. You know, I, I wasn't prepared to talk about this, but I feel like I should. So I'm going to go for it. Uh, yeah. In the past two years. Wow. Is it almost two years since the COVID thing started? Jeez. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, I was out there. I was living in Seattle uh, at the beginning of this COVID psyop if you will and um while i was out there i was very isolated i had just gotten out of a very painful devastating relationship and i didn't really know anyone out there except one person so i spent a lot of time alone walking around green lake contemplating life reading books and my life got really quiet and really self-reflective and in this time i I was confronted with all of my own deepest shadows and deepest desires and, and everything that had led me to this point where I was out there by myself, just lost and confused. And I started contemplating spirituality as one does when, you know, when they're just, they have nothing else to do. And I realized that I had spent my entire life, especially because of the church trauma, trying not to be spiritual anymore. Uh, trying to pretend that I didn't sense uh, an undercurrent of energy in everything, in people, in places, in events. And I had always had the gift of hyperperception. I, I often called myself clairsentient, but I was in denial about the ramifications of what it means to be spiritually sensitive. Because if there was more to this world than just what we see with our or sense with our five senses, then that would turn everything I knew on its head. And the more I, I deeply contemplated this, um, the more I just had to come to terms with the fact that I was cutting off my own life force by trying not to be spiritual anymore. So I made the commitment to return to my spiritual roots to really just accept that I'm spiritually sensitive, that there's more to this world than just base material and that I have a purpose and my life has a meaning and there are forces at work in my life that are too mysterious to comprehend but I know that they're there and I trust just the the genius perfection of this world that we live in and and with all its mysteries and long story short um that brought me back to contemplating my gift of song and I remembered that in the church, sometimes when I would sing, um, and this was a Pentecostal church, people would get filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what they call it. Um, and I'm not saying this to hype myself up because this is what I was in denial about. I knew that my voice had an effect on people that was beyond what you could rationalize with like skeptical scientific explanations. People were literally having spiritual experiences from hearing my voice. And um, now, now that I have embraced my spirituality, I recognize, oh, that's because I have the gift of sound healing in my voice. That's a thing. That's a shamanic tradition, not to claim that I'm a shaman, but it's, it is a thing that at the time I didn't have a context for. And so I couldn't make sense of why the church was so desperate to sort of like capture and control this gift of mine and use it to their benefit. Um, but, you know, now that I'm wise enough to look back on those experiences, like, oh, yes, I did have a gift. And that's exactly why they wanted to exploit it, because they recognized it before I did. Um, it's now mine to reclaim. And I, you know, 
I do want to actually bring that into the world. Um, I feel like I'm getting away from your question, though. Could you remind me what you asked me? Well, I, no, I don't believe you are. It, it's a complicated question in that how does one um, discover at a young age or have it discovered for them that they have this powerful voice, but then have that voice exploited mm. by people, take a break from singing, but then re-enter it. And I was going to ask you to, to, to uh, bring in the spirituality angle, but you did. It's like basically from the time that you stopped singing with the church, focused on writing to this moment where you are releasing your first single, like what type of unminding did you have to do? And talk to us about how it feels to have this single completed and um, released on November 11th. Oh man, it's so surreal, everything that's been happening. Um, because as part of my reclamation of my spiritual gifts and, and you know, spiritual insights, it's almost like, not almost like, it is like, the entire universe is aligning to propel me towards a musical destiny. It's almost like I just had to willingly and freely approach my own path. And the path is appearing as I continue taking steps by faith, you could say. And so the right people are practically materializing out of thin air. The right healing modalities are making themselves known to me. And suddenly something that I struggled through for years, which was vocal trauma and the fear of singing and the fear of using my own voice, um, is just sort of effortlessly melting away. And that's why I said earlier that that narrative of pain, I no longer identify with it because even though I recognize that it was a struggle to get to this point or I'm actually releasing music, it doesn't feel like a struggle anymore. It feels like like I'm so supported by forces beyond my understanding and I just trust it. I trust it. And that's why I'm so enthusiastic about telling people, you know, if you have something in your life that you've turned your back on, you're it's not too late to get back on your path. You know, I, I think these days a lot of people are afraid to say words like purpose and meaning. You know, we're all being sold this this lie that we're just a cosmic accident floating on a spinning ball in the void and that our lives mean nothing. But in my heart of hearts, I know that isn't true. I know that every single person matters. Every single person has a gift that only they can share. And I really, really, really want everyone to experience what I'm experiencing now, which is the joy of self-liberation, of realizing that ultimately it really is just you holding you back. That that's perfect. That's the perfect segue to the to the next segment because when we come back from this break, I'm going to ask you how someone with the type of religious background that you has had stays spiritual without mm. the dogma and without the groupthink. And mm. on that note, we will be right back. We're back with Alison Gray. And I wanted to mention as sort of a, um, by comparison, how in my life, I went to Catholic school for 12 years from first grade to 12th grade. But even in my first six years preschool, I grew up in a Catholic household. My, we went to church, my parents went to church, my older sister went to Catholic school. But when I graduated Catholic high school, 
I didn't necessarily rebel against religion. I just drifted away. And when I think about it, I feel like perhaps I've been on a journey to replace that in my life. And for a while, it was martial arts. It was going to the to the gym. And more recently, in the past five years, I mentioned earlier on this episode about the, the uh, program I have to help homeless women on the streets. It feels like a spiritual mission. And I can't even count how many times the women have said, God bless you to you or called me a saint or an angel when I do this. Mm. So I bring this up to sort of set the stage for you because you've, you've laid a lot of groundwork here. Um, I'm sure listeners would want to know, how does someone who comes out of such a strict religious um, childhood maintain spirituality outside of any organized religion and also maintain their individuality in that process? Well, there's no way to sugarcoat this. Uh, in my opinion, the only way to truly replenish one's spiritual uh, power and become sovereign and, and self-liberate is to take 100% responsibility for one's beliefs. So the trap or really the pattern I had allowed myself to become stuck in prior to my spiritual awakening I mentioned about two years ago when the COVID thing started, uh, I was in this vicious cycle of, of blaming everyone but myself for the circumstances I'd find myself in, the problems I was having. Um, and my mind really felt like a prison, but I kept blaming my childhood church. I kept blaming um, this mentor I'd had at age 17 who I called my cult leader and uh, blaming every possible authority for why my life was the way it was and why I couldn't really connect with my spirituality independently. And it was only when I realized the only thing you can know is yourself. That was when I had that breakthrough of like, well, no one else could even like tell me the truth of the universe, even if they really wanted to, even if they're totally innocent and they're not a cult leader and they're genuinely trying to save me. No one can save me but me. And that's why I now call myself Gnostic. Um, you know, I don't mean to like evangelize. And the funny thing is um, the word Gnostic is so tricky because it's a word that's used to describe a worldview that is about believing things through your own personal like insight instead of uh, gleaning information from the outside world. Um, but even just talking about how exciting of a, a, a way of acquiring information it is um, could sound evangelical. So um, well, it, it's, it comes out of a, a form of Christianity. Is that fair to say? Yes. Um, basically, there. I would say there's the religion of Gnosticism, which is, you know, Jesus actually had these secret teachings that the church was trying to suppress. And we happen to find the old manuscripts and find out what Jesus actually said to his disciples, you know, like the Gospel of Thomas and um, the, the Nag Hammadi Library. And Earth is a prison planet. We're being kept here by like aliens, you know, so that's the religion of Gnosticism. But then there's the philosophy of Gnosticism, which I think is more palatable to most people, that the only thing you can know is yourself. And so self-knowledge reigns supreme over any other kind of knowledge. Like no one can hand you the truth, even if someone is being super clear and um, well-intentioned. Anything they say will sound like gibberish until you're ready to understand or understand, you could say. 
inner stand. Yes, that yeah. that's um that's a popular play on understand because you know, um a lot of gnostics tend to believe that that words themselves are spells and that there's all these hidden almost like self-sabotaging curses in everyday language. So understand means to stand under. And if you're talking about your own sovereign spiritual authority, you don't want to imply that you're standing under someone else's authority. So you would say inner stand or something to that effect. So in other words, because we've had conversations like this, when you don't even realize what you're doing, but you could be taking away your own power by using the most common terms for concepts that people um, speak in in day to day language. Yeah, to put it simply, language is cursed, or specifically, the English language is full of um, self negations and self cancellations. Um, I actually wrote a whole essay on this that goes into deeper detail on my website, Hologram Press, if anyone wants to go check it out. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. we're, we're coming back to you. Um, when I asked you about maintaining your spirituality outside of a religious structure, you said it's the most important thing is to know yourself and, and mm -hmm. it's going to come from yourself. So, so please continue on that on that concept. Absolutely. I think it's more relevant than ever now in this age of information where everything's a quick Google search away. And what I'm about to say is going to sound heretical, um, especially in these times where there's a lot of emphasis on following the science. Um, but I do think the most valuable knowledge is the knowledge that's found within. And when I say within, I mean literally through meditation and going inward and self-reflecting you'd be amazed what kinds of information you can uh, interload, <laughs> not download, um, from, uh, from just contemplation. I mean, for me, two years ago, when I had that big spiritual breakthrough out there, isolated in Seattle, what actually happened was um, I started asking myself all the, I don't, there wasn't like a single question. It was almost like I wanted to know as much as I could about who am I, why am I here, what is the nature of the universe. And the more I deeply reflected just in silence alone, the more answers started sort of popping up, like in, but like in my own heart, I felt like the knowledge was just springing up inside of myself. I suddenly I felt like I understood the nature of evil and the nature of goodness and what love is and what freedom is. And and I just had this cascade of epiphanies that I truly did not come from an outside source. A lot of the ideas that were just springing up in my heart were not things I'd ever heard before. And then later I would discover that a lot of the things I had um come upon on my own were things that it had, had had been written about for thousands and thousands of years you know these ancient mystical traditions when they talk about going within to find the truth that was actually what i had done not realizing it and so a lot of mystics who just devote their time to meditation um they all many of them come upon basically identical answers to these exact spiritual questions 
because these are not things you can find on Google. These are not things you can find in a book. Uh, there are some answers you can only find out from yourself because ultimately- let me, let me interrupt you for one second there. Yeah. So you've described yourself, if I'm correct, a synchro mystic, right? Uh -huh. So what you're describing now to my ears are, are two incredible synchronicities of one of this, this journey of self-knowledge and self-awareness right before the whole pandemic narrative begins when this information came in awfully handy and, <laughs> and then simultaneously to discover this information and then doubly discover that other people had these same revelations in the past it's just that they're not mainstream and and that you wouldn't happen upon them unless you were specifically looking for them so these would be these would fall under the category if i'm correct of of synchronicity Absolutely. And I love synchromysticism. Um, for anyone who's not familiar, uh, I mean, different people will tell you different things, but my personal uh, outlook on synchronicity is that it's when you become more and more self-aware. And when I say self-aware, I mean, not just aware of your personality traits and stuff, but when you really shine light on the functions and mechanisms of your subconscious mind, which is primarily where you create your reality and perception from. You know, it's all those background programs, um, things you learned in childhood, indoctrinations and things like that. They're all stored in your subconscious. The more you shine light on these things and integrate them into the light of consciousness, the more you start to see connections in the outer worlds, you'll start seeing certain numbers repeating, you'll start seeing certain animal messengers, um, you might be asking yourself a question and then randomly someone will blurt out the answer to your question later in the day, not even knowing that you were searching for the answer to the question. And so these are what you call synchronicities. And my theory as to why that happens is the more you connect back to yourself internally, that connection is then reflected externally in the world. So everything is ultimately connected and everything is ultimately the same energy, but you won't become aware of that until you're internally purified and cleansed and you know you bring light to your own shadows and clear them out so that you can see more clearly. Well, so what would, well, what would you call this as a spiritual practice? What you're describing is sounds it sounds completely accessible to anyone willing to go there. Um, but is there a way of, of sort of pointing people in this direction? Mm. It's somewhere between, I, I, I've heard it called shadow work. I've heard it called alchemy. Um, I've heard it called hieros gamos, the inner marriage. Um, basically anything that, I think it starts with taking responsibility for yourself and realizing that no one's coming to save you you have to heal and it, it may not seem fair but um it, it must be done and then once you've accepted that and you become the authority over your own life then your task is to heal and and become aware of the programs that have been limiting you all your life and let them go not just let them go but but love them and let them go you know in my case um, I had to come to the harsh realization that I was telling this story about childhood trauma as an excuse for why I wouldn't sing anymore. But then when I really, really questioned it and really asked myself, well, 
is it that I can't sing anymore or is it that I don't want to and I'm using my trauma as an excuse? And what what is the worst thing that could happen if I sing? Like, do I really think I'm going to hell if I do it wrong or if I sing in a context outside of the church, like of my own volition? Like the more I questioned it, the more the pattern stopped making sense. And I was able to then create a new uh, motivation in place of the old motivation to stay victimized and limiting. Wow. So would it be fair to say that at this point in your life, you could look back on that cultic Pentecostal church upbringing with a lot more compassion and empathy than you ever could before? Absolutely. I, I do want to acknowledge that when I talk about the church and how they exploited me, I actually don't think they saw themselves as exploiting me. And I'm not saying that to excuse their behavior, but just in fairness, I don't think their intention was to like scar me. I think they really think they were doing the right thing and, you know, providing a platform for my voice and just, you know, happening to make money off of it. Um, but I, I'm, I don't hold any resentment or grudges towards them anymore. I understand that they were just as limited by their, you know, their background programs, their, their shadows and their subconscious motivations as I became later in life. And I, you know, I can't hold it against them for simply not knowing what they don't know. That's that's such a powerful lesson. It's it's um, as as I hear you saying that, I'm thinking to myself, what can I look back on, in all my all the countless hours I spent in church and so on, and mm -hmm. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to contemplate and ponder that deeply. One semi comical thing I used to do was when I was always giving public talks, I would ask the people in the audience sh shortly after I was introduced to turn to each other, shake hands and say, peace be with you, which they do in the Catholic mass. And it was an incredible, it turned into an incredible way to sort of bond and um, relax the audience before I would let loose on one of my radical rants. And just as a side note in the age of COVID, after they all shook hands, I would say joke, jokingly at the time, that wasn't so bad, right? Don't worry, we'll pass around the hand sanitizer in a little bit. <laughs> not, not having any knowledge of how prophetic that line would be. But I, I think the listeners would really appreciate that, that are appreciating what you're saying in the sense that, that things aren't black and white. And when you go through a terrible traumatic experience, there is no shame in seeing things in black and white. And that's what healing is about and this ability to recognize how to grow out of it, to recover and to see things with new eyes or to, mm -hmm. to use what you were saying, the self-authority, this where spirituality can grow out of a place of not having to trust someone who's wearing a priest's outfit or a, a, a the white jacket of a doctor. So I, I find this to be a, a powerful path that that uh, has led you to this point where your first single came out this week. So it's like, it's to, to bear fruit, it's fantastic. Yeah, I am so excited to share the first, you know, what would you call this? Not the first step, because I've been taking steps up until this point, but um, yeah, the first glimpse into my self-liberation journey is this song. And I feel the need to mention that while I am very proud of this song and I had a blast creating this with Sean, my, my co-writer, who is mega talented, please go check out his work as well. 
um, even though I love the song, it's not the best representation of the music I write on my own. This is very much a collaborative piece. And um, I can't wait to show people the other songs I've been writing by myself. Like they're, I think they're more true to my personal sound and my personal genre. I, well, I, I do want to ask you about Sean so we can put information about him in the show notes mm -hmm. and, talk, and talk about um, other aspects of your of your future musical releases. But we're going to take another short break. And when we come back, we just want to wrap up to remind people on where they can um, listen to and buy Earthquake and learn more about you. So we'll be right back after this short break. And we're back with Allison Gray. We're about to wrap up. So let me first say, Allison, thank you so much for being a guest, not only on my first podcast, but on my second podcast too. I, I really appreciate it. And I'm a thousand percent sure that the listeners are even more appreciative. So I want to make sure that everyone who's listening to this can connect with you however you see fit. So I'm going to give you the floor here and tell people where to find you, how to find you, your music, your writing, your spiritual thoughts, everything that we need to know about Alison Gray. Sure thing. And before I start that, thank you for having me on as a guest again and giving space to my story and my work. Uh, I, I'm grateful beyond words. You are most welcome. The pleasure was mine. <laughs> No, the pleasure was mine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, primarily right now, I want people to know how to find my music. So all the links uh, to my music related stuff are on whenhumanshadwings.com. From there, you can find the single release, which is on Bandcamp. That's the best way to support us. Um, also, anywhere music is streamed, like Spotify and iTunes. Then after that, uh, you can find my writing on my website, hologrampress.com. And if you just want to connect with me as a person and see the kind of weird memes that I laugh at at two in the morning, um, you can follow me on Instagram. My username is allison.gray. That's A-L-I-C-E-N dot G-R-E-Y. Okay. And you did mention a collaborator on Earthquake. Do you want to give Sean a quick mention here? Absolutely. He is in the song credits on Bandcamp, uh, but in case anyone missed it, his name is Sean Siebold. He did the piano and the guitar and the bass and the drums and the mixing and the production on this song. He is magical. And his website is happyhm.com, happy H-M-M. Fantastic. And folks, you can you can go back a little bit on the podcast and hear the excerpt from Earthquake again. And I strongly recommend you listen to the and purchase the entire song. So Allison, once again, thank you so much. It's always, always so incredible to chat with you. And I will be back with my closing thoughts right after this short break. Thank you. Feel it as it comes down low. Again, that's an excerpt from the brand new song, Earthquake. And in case I wasn't clear during the podcast, Alison Gray's artist name for her music is When Humans Had Wings. Please check the show notes for all relevant links. Now, 
I'm going to introduce an idea on my second episode here that I'm going to end each podcast with a short personal story and hopefully connect it to some of the ideas that were discussed during that particular episode. This week's tale relates to the spiritual themes discussed during my conversation with Allison. You see, when I was about four years old, I came down with a mysterious ailment that involved debilitating leg pain, the inability to walk, and an irregular heartbeat. For a while, my pediatrician was sure that I had rheumatic fever. My ever-devout mother prayed nightly for God to spare me and instead give her the condition. And here's the catch. I soon recovered fully to live an active, athletic life while my mom, wait for it, came down with rheumatic fever. She also experienced severe rheumatoid arthritis and other outcomes. These issues hampered her health for the rest of her life. Now, if I share this story in front of a religious person, they typically would make the sign of the cross. In the presence of one of those scientific rational types, it's dismissed as coincidence. But what this experience means is very much in the eye of the beholder. But there is one thing of which I am 100% certain. My mother meant it with all her heart when she said she'd rather suffer for her entire life than see her son sick. For me, that qualifies as divine intervention. Now, for the purposes of post-woke, I have a more holistic lesson to draw from this story. My mother's behavior and what it created might be an excellent illustration of just how powerful we are, even if we don't realize it. Because if your belief is strong enough, if your belief in whatever force you choose is strong enough, you can literally give yourself a disease. Conversely, you can heal yourself. The science of epigenetics shows us that we can alter our DNA simply with our minds. So keep in mind that none of the algorithms or the artificial intelligence or the relentless propaganda assaulting you 24-7 is more potent than your mind. The future is unwritten and you have a pen in your hands. So stay conscious of the words and messages you choose. Now, I want to say thank you again for supporting my podcast. I'll see you all next week, possibly with a solo episode. But in the meantime, be sure to keep your guard up.